You are listening to the Ortho Idea Podcast, where we bring you the newest trends in orthopedic technology. Tune in for engaging interviews with medical device executives, surgeons, and surprise special guests discussing new disruptive technology in the marketplace. Here is your host, Eric Anderson. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Ortho Idea Podcast. My name is Eric Anderson, and I'll be your host today. And today we have an exciting new technology that we want to talk about on the OrthoIdea podcast, and it's uh, Subchondral Solutions. And we have the honor of having Dr. Derek D. on the podcast. And Dr. D. is the chief medical officer and founder of Subchondral Solutions. And he is coming on today to talk about their revolutionary new technology. And so without further ado, Dr. D., how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, if you... Would, which you kind of go into the evolution or at least the uh, from the beginning of subchondral solutions and and give us an idea, you know, from the start and how you got to where you are now. Absolutely. Well, you know, some of the the genesis of some of the ideas really started a while ago when I was in my sports med orthopedic fellowship. It was in South Lake Tahoe. I do a lot of skiing and, you know, the concept of what the ski technology was doing to absorb vibrational stresses always fascinated me. And then I started to look further into, you know, why we, despite some of our efforts to repair some of the cartilage and joint lesions, people still would continue to have pain or progress on to arthritis. And as I dug a little deeper, it became apparent that really osteoarthritis or joint disease or osteochondral disease is really a mechanical failure of the bone and cartilage unit. And it's a mechanical failure from basically a fatigue failure overload from these vibrational or disorganized stresses. And once the mechanical failure ensues, then you get biologic failure. I see. And is this something when you were in your fellowship and you were noticing and you just, was it something that you said, hey, I've got to create or I've got to invent an implant to address these issues? Or was it something that it's always been, you know, kind of something that you've always noticed in your practice or how did it come about? I started thinking about it in fellowship. And then as I got into practice, just like other sports med docs, you know, we're, we're doing what, you know, what the standard of care is and obviously hoping for the best outcome for our patients to get back to high level activities. And then, you know, began to see how some of our, despite our best efforts, that wasn't always possible. So I started to dig back into more of the basic science literature and other things that really talked about you know, what some of the theories were about the role of the cartilage and the bone and how they interact. And I just thought, we know that the bone is involved. I mean, the Holy Grail obviously is, is we've been focused so for so many years on is the articular cartilage, the smooth gliding surface, a very specialized tissue that has an inability to heal. But we knew that there were things going on with the bone. We just didn't know how important it was or how it interacted. We you know, you could see bone changes on the x-ray as your arthritis progressed. And then on MRIs and, and other imaging modalities, we could see activity in the bone. And so as I dug a little deeper, I thought then it became apparent to me that the bone was was not being addressed functionally and that it needed sort of some help, so to speak. It needed to be reinforced. And so the concepts kind of went back to, you know, the implant, you know, I'm a surgeon. So obviously I was thinking of some sort of way to mechanically fix this if it is in, in fact a mechanical problem or there's a component of it. So the implant is really based on addressing the mechanical deficiencies of that subchondral bone. 
It's in essence, like almost like a rebar, but it's not a solid piece of, it's a housing. It's a scaffold or rebar that fixes and reinforces the buttresses, the mechanical deficiencies of the subchondral bone, allows it to heal, and then also creates a better healing environment for, for biologics and scaffolds. It's a conduit that has fenestrations. It almost looks like maybe like a thimble type threaded device, but it's threaded in, it's hydroxyapatite coated. So it's as immediate rapid healing and, and ability to, to bear a load. And then it has, it's hollow and it's hard for me to describe without a picture, but it's like a, almost like a thimble device where the bone marrow, and in fact, the bone is sticking up through the inside. So it's the bone is preserved from the patient and that's wicking up marrow contents and acting like a funnel or a chimney to get those nutrients up to the joint surface to basically feed the biology that's happening on top. And the biology would be, there's lots of advanced scaffolds and other tissue engineering things that that are available, but they don't have a good firm foundation to take hold. They don't have a good delivery, a way to deliver it minimally invasive or arthroscopic. They're not able to be immediately weight-bearing. So we want we want a better solution for the patient to to mobilize quickly. And that's what the Im- implant allows us to do. I see obviously, you know, the early active movement is what you're trying to achieve with this device, which is which is Interesting because obviously never anything like this was available before. What would you classify as your ideal patient for this implant? Well, I would say that, you know, the ideal patients, you know, we've done patients from, you know, in their 20s to early 70s, actually. And so, you know, classically, when you look at osteochondral repair devices, you know, most technologies try to have a very, very narrow, you know, like isolated like one lesion that's small on a discrete surface, you know, would have the quote best results. But I would say the ideal patient is is really someone that just wants to continue to be as active as possible for their particular age group or, or whatever their recreational or sports goals are. But what because what we're seeing is is that patients at any age are able to mobilize quicker. So weight bear and rehabilitate sooner because the whole problem is reconstructed and you know they're not walking petri dishes waiting for some you know some tissue healing may or may not happen it's fully reconstructed and they're able to get back to their sports quicker so number 1 the ideal patient is someone that has the motivation and the desire to do those activities the second would be i would say you know we're seeing that the technology is very versatile there are patients that have had previous, you know, standard of care procedures like debridements, microfracture, osteochondral transplants, that for whatever reason, they continue to have pain or limitations. So not everybody is going to be a candidate because if your arthritis has progressed too far or if it's over too large an area, you may not be a candidate. But we have a number of patients that have had previous surgeries that are performing very well. So it's very exciting. It's a very versatile technology. So the results we're seeing, it was initially designed for the knee because I'm a knee and shoulder a sports surgeon, but it, we're really seeing applicability to, to lots of unsolved problems in other joints because the principles are the same. Sure. I was going to ask you, and you, you kind of hit on it already with the 
knee and shoulder, but anything with foot and ankle, I would imagine there's indications in the foot and ankle as well. Absolutely. I mean, no pun intended, but we're seeing a lot of traction with lower extremity patients, like the, the great toe is, is a common area to start to have osteochondral arthritic processes, spurring, and basically joint failure, and which involves that subchondral bone. So midfoot or talar lesions also we're seeing where the traditional procedures, you know, might have some early relief, you know, you're cleaning out the debris or taking off the spurs, but nothing has been there to really address how to reinforce and, and fix the bone part of the equation and allow an immediate transfer of those joint stresses to help your body dissipate those. And to avoid, I'm not a foot and ankle surgeon, but a lot of those procedures, you know, maybe salvage procedures, they continue to have pain. They may move to having a joint fusion, which, mm-hmm. which is good for some people because then they don't have pain anymore but that's at the sacrifice of not having motion. So depending on what you want to do, obviously, you know, 50% of the loads through the front of your foot go through that one toe. So it's a pretty important joint. You know, our goal is to try and have a procedure that maintains and restores motion that also relieves pain. And that's what we're seeing. Well, that's great. And for those patients that may be listening to the podcast what kind of procedure is, is it something you do in an outpatient surgery center or kind of procedurally, if you could kind of lead us and t- talk to us about that? That's another great question. You know, the goals of developing this implant and procedure is to have something that can be done minimally invasive or arthroscopic. You know, we put a camera in the joint and instead of certainly like it, like I said, I'm a, I'm a knee and shoulder surgeon. Traditionally, we used to do a lot of open surgery. Those are long incisions, four to six inch incisions. And no matter what you do, everything heals with scar tissue. And that's always part of what makes it difficult later for for rehabilitation. So the way the procedure is designed, it's over a guide wire. So you can imagine putting this thin guide wire into the defect. And everything is done over that guide wire. So you can basically do these osteochondral joint, mini joint reconstructions for lesions under your kneecap, you know, kneecap lesions, the patellofemoral joint or, or kneecap part of the joint is a big area of knee pain. Lots of people have kneecap type pain. The trochlea is on the trough side of the kneecap. So the kneecap is extremely hard bone that is driving into that trough like, like a ball pin hammer. And we're able to do these procedures arthroscopic. So once we get the guide wire in place with a special guide, all the prep work and the insertion of the implant is done arthroscopic. So basically, you just have a half an inch incision and you're able to, it's outpatient. It's about a you know 30 minute procedure, you know, for you know, probably per lesion or per location. And then you're able to, you know, go home you know, use some crutches, but bear some weight right away. And so we're seeing this in in other joints as well. It's relatively minimally invasive and early mobilization where patients, our foot and ankle specialists that are doing these procedures are seeing this trend of patients essentially being non-compliant, coming out of their boot, coming off the crutches because they don't have the pain anymore. A lot of the pain generators are actually in the bone. You know, like if you were to hit your funny bone, like your elbow or your knee, you bonk your knee on on the table or 
or like a tennis player, a tennis racket that you, you have those dampeners on the tennis racket because those vibrational stresses are literally going to your bone. The nerve pain fibers are not in the cartilage. They are in the bone and the bone sees that. So when patients have this done, you know, we're essentially decompressing and fixing that bone. And we think that's why they're being not as compliant because they don't have the pain anymore. But as they mobilize, we're also not getting the sort of bad sequelae of maybe some other procedures where you have a non-compliant patient get off their crutches too soon and then the knee or the joint kind of blows up, swells up. We're not seeing that because we have done some biomechanics studies that show that the procedure is able to bear normal joint forces immediately. I mean, obviously, we still protect people because, you know, if you have some swelling or your muscles shut down after surgery, you can't just walk on it without some assistive devices. But biomechanically, we've done some studies that show it's ready to go right away. So for the patient, I think that that's definitely a huge, you know, Plus, people, even if you're not a professional athlete, people need to get back to work. People don't have time to take off months and months and not, not go back to work, especially if you have work on your feet or do you know vigorous activities. We have a number of like police officers and sheriffs that you know want to get back to serve in the line of duty. They, they can't take too much time off and, and they never want to go back to desk work. And that leads me to my next question. And thank you for you know talking about the procedural part of it. Now, you obviously you've had patients that have been out, you know, with the implant for a period of time. Can you talk about some of your patients that have had the implant for a while? How are they doing? How long has it been since they've had the implant? And when they come back to see you, what do they have to say? We have patients that are over two years out now. And as I said, the age range of patients is from mid to late 20s to early 70s. And we're getting some really tremendously good clinical feedback. We're doing all the standard patient reported outcome scores and also satisfaction and expectation scores. Just just frankly asking them how satisfied they are and how much this procedure has met their expectations. Obviously, our our higher level athletes, we have a professional volleyball player that was able to, she had her knee fixed about six months before she had to start prepping for the the last Olympics and was able to, you know, compete in the pre-Olympic trials for, you know, you know, despite having her knee fixed just in that previous few months. And she's done extremely well. She was able to compete. She actually had, hers was a condylar defect, but she has a history, like a lot of professional athletes or any athletes, of multiple knee surgeries and lesions or disease, you know, osteochondral disease under her kneecap in her trochlea. So it was actually her opposite knee that was limiting her more as she was, you know, competing. So unfortunately, her team wasn't able to, to make the cut to the Olympics. So then she came, she actually came back just this past year because she wants to keep competing at some level. And so she came back to have her other knee done. And this was for trochlear disease. So that that's an example of a high level patient that was able to perform. And, you know, I think that speaks pretty well about how she felt her knee had done. And she had been battling some of these anterior knee problems for many years. So when she finally got the opposite knee done, she's doing very well, progressing very well with rehab. Some of our other patients, you know, we've done some shoulder patients. A number of these are in law enforcement. 
And they've pretty much gone back to their line of duties. You know, they're in the field, obviously have to be able to be 100% active without restrictions. You know, these were unstable shoulders with also defects. And they look to be doing well. I mean, we're, we're following all our patients clinically and also with serial radiographs, you know, follow-up imaging. So by and large, you know, we're seeing some, some good results. The patients are, are getting back to the activities that they want to do. Well, that's great to hear. And obviously, with this kind of technology now available to them, it's game-changing for patients. And I was also on the podcast we have as well. I wanted to introduce, and I didn't do that in the beginning, introduce Jordan Pina. He's the uh, Vice President of Subchondral Solutions, and he's on the podcast as well. And I wanted to see, Jordan, if you had any questions that you would like to put forth or talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Pleasure to be on here. And Dr. D, obviously, great to hear from you again. I did have a quick question. So, I'm curious about how you identify your patients clinically and radiographically if they're a potential candidate for subchondral solutions. That's a great question. Yeah, obviously starts with you know patients that are presenting to us that have pain. You know, where is their pain? I've always liked to ask. Despite what you know, we all love MRIs. We're orthopedic surgeons. We love looking at MRIs and X-rays. But regardless of what those show, I, I always like to ask the patient where the pain is. Just point with one finger. And and when does that happen? And then you start to kind of hone in on, you know, looking at the radiographic images, obviously, like for a knee, a joint, which we use x-rays along with the MRIs to assess the severity of arthritis. You know, we don't want someone that's too far downstream, that's, that's bone on bone, that's worn the whole surface away. The ideal candidate is a patient that has a discrete or, you know, an isolated osteochondral defect that hasn't led to significant joint space narrowing on the weight-bearing x-rays. And then on the MRI, you know, the indications really, you know, when we have subchondral bone failure, there's been some papers that have been written about how it's described radiographically. You know, on the histologic level, it is trabecular microcracks and basically a stress fracture or fatigue failure of the bone. So the rate of damage exceeds the rate of repair. I mean, bone is, is alive, so it's constantly being overturned. But when the rate of you know, damage exceeds the rate of repair, then that's where you get the failure. So the failure can show up as sclerosis on an MRI or subchondral bone advancement, which can be harder to see, or intra, what we call intralesional osteophytes or bone hypertrophy, which you can see on both an X-ray or an MRI, like on the T1 image or the T2 Or we get more signs of bone failure, which would be more in the subchondral area, cystic changes, bone edema. If the bone continues to fail structurally, sometimes you'll see it more on a T1 image on the MRI where the bone is trying to repair the area and it's becoming sclerotic and it's basically starts to lose vascularity. and, And then you see that kind of more on a, maybe a radiologist would say, osteonecrotic area or osteochondrosis, osteochondritic area are different descriptions of what the radiologist might say or subchondral microcrack. But bone edema, just even bone edema, which is on a T2 image, which is probably the most prevalent finding, has been correlated histologically with trabecular fracture and failure. So it's basically a fracture phenomenon. And then that's what that's what we're reconstructing. That's what we're fixing with this this is a, is a specialized fracture screw implant for, for osteochondral damage or fractures is, is what it is. 
And then it obviously has other characteristics that allow it to support the biology of the area. I think that's that's great. I, th- I think it's good the way you explain how you do the full workup of the patient, not just clinically, but also radiographically, and then and then also in surgery as well, intraoperatively. I had one last question. I know you've kind of mentioned this to me in the past, but just about the why. I know you kind of talked about how you came up with the idea, starting as far back as residency and fellowship, but but where where is the treatment void? I guess I know you've kind of talked about that before. Right, right. I mean, certainly as a knee surgeon, and this would be applicable to other joints, I I believe as well. But in the knee landscape of surgery, you know, on one end of the spectrum, we have sports medicine specialists like myself, where we're doing these arthroscopic procedures, um, people that are injuring themselves in their their younger decades of damaging ligaments. And as they do so, they're also damaging their cartilage and joint structures. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, maybe from your age 50s and up, where you know the arthroscopic procedures have somehow failed to prevent the progression towards uh, full-blown arthritis, and people still want to be active. So then you have you know joint replacement, which is a good procedure, but it is metal and plastic, and there's going to be limitations. So then. Basically, as I got into practice and, and noticed, you know, my return of patients and in my practice, you could just see this gradual progression towards of patients having sports med type injuries and arthroscopic procedures and then progressing gradually towards needing a knee replacement. So there's really this void in treatment where you start to run out of options where you're you're just basically tell the patient, well, you know, the joke of, well, what do you do that makes it hurt? Well, don't do that. I mean, obviously, if you are want to play basketball and your knee can't support it anymore, well, you're going to stop playing basketball or, or whatever higher level activity. And so then you have this treatment void of basically injections and, ask, you know, pulling the fluid out, activity modification, bracing, you know, orthobiologics. I'm a big believer in some of those. Those have been shown to, to sort of temporize or, or treat some of the symptoms maybe, maybe a little bit more effectively. Or repeat arthroscopic cleanouts where it's not like they don't work, but they're not fixing the problem. But like I tell patients, as you degenerate your joint, there's debris. It's like having sand in your shoe. You know, you know, cleaning out the debris is going to help some, but it's not going to restore your ability to do things. So really, that was the goal is to have a procedure that's minimally invasive, that's more effective than the existing procedures and that can hopefully prevent that they can preserve the the function of the joint without sacrificing you know motion and, and other structures and and prevent that progression towards arthritis that's really sort of the why i think is it's something that surgeons need or or physicians need because we know there's this void in treatment but obviously it's really what patients need we're all patients too <laughs> i'm a patient too right right and i want i want to keep staying active. That's really where this is targeted is joint preservation, minimally invasive, and rapid mobilization. Well, thank you for that. And obviously for patients and or surgeons who are listening, this is a fantastic product to, especially for patients who want to be moving and active and keep being active. This is obviously something that they need to look at in order to serve the needs of their patients, which is fantastic. I really appreciate both of you guys coming on today and taking time out of your busy schedules to talk about subchondral solutions. 
if somebody wanted to, whether it be a patient or surgeon, wanted to learn more about subchondral solutions, where should they go? Yeah, they can check out our website, subchondralsolutions.com. We're also on social media. And then, or you can always reach out to me, which I can share my contact information with, with Eric. So, absolutely. Well, great. Well, again, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on the Ortho Idea podcast. I really appreciate it and look forward to seeing subchondral solutions grow in the future. Thanks for having us. Thanks so yeah, much. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Ortho Idea podcast. If you would like to learn more about the technologies discussed, please visit www.orthoidea.com.